if you've got your Bibles, won't you open to Psalm chapter 103? That's where we're going to be again today. Last week we started a few weeks just on the benefits of being a believer and what Scripture says as we engage the Word of God, putting it all together in our lives, allowing it to, to dictate how we behave and live, not trying to make the Bible say what we need it to say to justify how we live. So we started a few weeks into that um, last week, and, and we're going to carry that on today. Uh, see where the Lord takes us as we, as we just keep pushing through this. Amen? Uh, and engaging scriptures, we've talked about this, you know, this idea, we're going to engage the scripture, we're going to engage, what, what is God doing? How, does it, how do we take this and apply it to our lives? I, I tried to summarize it and come up with a really simple dis- definition, but it kind of means that you read it, you meditate on it, you memorize it, um, you pray the word into life's problems that come our way. Uh, so that it filters into our worldview, so that our lifestyle lines up with what it says. Now, some of us are really engaged to the Republican point of view. Some of us are really engaged to the Democratic point of view. Some of us are really engaged in um, the NRA's point of view. Some of us are really engaged in um, the gun control point of view. We filter everything through that. As believers, I want us to take a step back and say, I'm going to be engaged in the biblical worldview and allow my world to be filtered through that. Because let's be honest, the truth is in the middle anyway. I didn't expect a ton of amens. We've got to get the word back to where it's the centerpiece of how we define and live our life. And so that's what the whole, this whole year is about. You know, at the end of the year, if we have a bunch of people that say, well, I'm not really a Republican or I'm not really a Democrat anymore, I'm just gonna be a believer and find out what God's word says, then it will have been a successful year, amen? Because at the end of the day, this matters. Our citizenship is not in America. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, while I'm here, I'm going to engage in what's going on in the world around me. I'm going to pay attention to it, but I'm not going to allow it to supersede what the Bible says. So, as we dig into this, we're going to grow in it. Today, we're going to continue our discussion in the benefits of God and what he has for us and bringing our life into alignment with the scriptures and not vice versa, trying to make the scriptures line up with what we want them to say. Last week, we started here again in uh, uh, Psalms 103. Uh, We started with the first three verses, but we're going to read the first five again. They'll be on your screens. If you've got your Bible, flip open there. But it simply says, my soul praise Yahweh, and all that is within me praise his holy name. My soul praise the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. Last week, the whole crux of the message centered on praise, and then it unlocks our memory to, to remember what God's done. So we've got to praise our way into it. He forgives all our sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. Today we're going to look at um, these last three benefits listed here of how God redeems, he replaces, and he renews. When we talk about that God redeems, again, they're, they're in verse number four, the first part of it says, he redeems your life from the pit. He redeems your life from the pit. Now, I don't know about you, but my life was a pit that needed to be redeemed, amen? My, my life was a pit. 
I'm grateful God redeemed me. I'm grateful that he brought me out. Now, as we dig into this, there's a little bit more that goes into every part of it. The thing we've got to remember, the word that's, the, uh, the Hebrew word here for redeem is also translated differently in other parts of scripture. It's translated to buy back, to avenge, or to require blood. It's also what is trans, same words translated various ways, depending on what was proper at the time. In other words, God placed such a high value on me and on you that he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to redeem you and be willing to pay the most costly price to have you as my own. Nothing else is as as important to me as having a way to redeem you to me so that we can have the relationship with the Father that he's always wanted. He loved you so much, he was willing to send his one and only son to pay the price that he didn't owe to redeem people who owed a price we couldn't pay. That's what he did. That's how he redeemed us. He loved us that much. There are so many stories that we could fit into here that that we've heard throughout time and over and over again, but this this one to me seems really, really fitting. There was a a late 1800s, early 1900s, a, a man sent his wife on a trip. She'd always wanted to see the world, so he had acquired some wealth and he sent his wife on to Europe. She goes, and at home, they have an extensive art collection. He loved art, especially by the old famous painters. He sends her. Business uh, events kept, her, kept him from being able to join her. Well, she was on the last couple of days of the trip, and she was there somewhere in the south of France, and she comes across this priceless painting in her own mind uh, that, that was by his favorite painter. And so she sends a telegram, tells him about this famous Van Gogh painting that she's discovered uh, that the, the seller is asking a whopping $350,000 for. What should she do? It's the only one of its kind. She knows he would love it. And his reply was, no price too high. So she got the telegram and immediately rushed down to the, uh, to the seller, pulled out a check and wrote a check for $350,000, took the painting, had it wrapped up and shipped it back to the United States. When he arrived home, when she arrived home, Uh, she was ecstatic. I found this painting. Look what we got. And his uh, joy did not match hers. His sorrow and despair crept in immediately and said, did you not get the telegram? And she said, sure, I did here and showed it to him. There's a difference when you get the proper punctuation in there. It was supposed to say, no, comma, price too high. Instead, it said, no price too high. (laughs) Now, friends, maybe Jesus missed it in translation, but when he said, Father, do you want me to pay the ultimate price to redeem them? The father didn't put a comma in there. He said, son, no price is too high. Whatever it takes to redeem them. And Jesus said, fine, I'll pay with my own blood, my own sacrifice. I will give my own life as a ransom for many. That they can come to a loving relationship with us, I will pay the price. That's what it meant for Jesus to redeem us. He paid that price, amen. He said, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you have been through. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pull you out. That's the way God felt about us. But his redemption wasn't just to give us a get out of hell free card for eternity, but also 
to deal with life here. Now, salvation wouldn't do us much good if we still had to live through hell every step of the way, right? Well, that's where redemption even plays into that. You see, when David was writing this verse, every one of these promises that he's rehearsing is a reference to previous Psalms that he's written. This one, that he redeems us from the pit, he's referencing Psalm 56, 13, which was written about the time that he's fleeing uh, uh, from Saul, and he goes to the Philistines at Gath, and they welcome him in. The same people that he had just killed their, their favorite war hero, he runs to them and says, save me from the lunatic king. Now, When he's writing this and he says, you redeem me from the pit, sometimes redemption might look a little bit different in the natural, in the moment. Because here he is, he runs to them. The whole chapter of Psalm 56 is about God's faithfulness, and it was certainly during a very trying time in David's whole life. Here he is fleeing from Saul. He takes Goliath's sword, and he goes back to the Philistines and says, I need to be protected. And they agree, and they welcome him in. David was not trying to be sacrilegious or not trusting in God as he was doing this, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't trusting that God would not take care of him because he knew that God would. He was saying that God is going to see me through this, but while he's working, I'm going to do what I can. You ever had a moment, I've had these moments in life and in counseling where you, um, you're talking to people and, well, I know that God's going to make a way. Okay, that's great. I appreciate that you have faith that God's going to get you out of $2 million in debt. Great. Where are you working at? Well, God's going to see me through. Now, I'm not saying that God can't, because God could absolutely do that, right? Have you ever seen that be the case? where people are asking God to see them through and get them out of everything, but they're not willing to do anything to get it through. It's amazing to me at how often God's blessing follows someone's hard work ethic. As we put God's word in practice, trusting him, but still getting after it in the same way. I'm not saying that God can't and that God won't bless you. I'm saying that there's a time and a place where you have to learn to dwell in the land so that it can produce. The only time that God provided like that was when they were in the wilderness and they had no way to make it through and God brings them into the promised land and says, now go and conquer and subdue the land. God can bring you in, but you still got to learn to live in it, right? Again, I didn't expect a ton of amens there. We like the idea, name it and claim it and give it to me, Lord. Sometimes God says, I'll give it to you, but... You're going to have to sow, and you're going to have to, by the sweat of your brow, see that come to pass. That's what he's doing here. David, he says, I'm going to trust God, but while he's, he's making a way, I'm going to put in my effort. We, we, we say often around here that we're going to pray like it depends on God, but we're going to work like it depends on us. We're going to pray like it depends on God, but we're going to work like it depends on me. On us, on you. That's the way God does things in our own lives. We've got to put all of our trust in him. But we've got to also put all of our work into it as well. See, David knew what the pit or the trap was. The very grip of death felt like. And yet he says that that's what God redeems us from. David could have killed Saul and gotten his way out of it, but he didn't choose to do it the wrong way. He trusted God through it. He knew what that meant and what it was like to see it come to pass. No matter what your pit is that you're facing, 
God will deliver you and redeem you out of it. No matter what it looks like, he'll redeem you from the pit. That's what the scripture says. He's not going to allow you to stay in it forever. He's going to leverage it and turn it around because of what he, that's what he's in the business of doing. Amen. Now I'm grateful that God doesn't say, Hey, you're in a pit. Good luck. He's not like, you know, everybody else. He's like the good Samaritan. Hey, you're down. Let me help you out. But he didn't pay every bill from the time that the, the, the gentleman was well. He got him well and then sent him on his way. That's what we do. What has God redeemed you from? And then why do we keep digging ourselves back into the pit? Trust that God will get you out, but then learn to live out of it. Learn to live out of it. Not only does he redeem you, but he crowns you with his blessing and with his favor. Now, I, here we said that he replaces because that's the idea of what in, in the Hebrew it says. So again, in verse four, the second part says that he crowns you with his faithful love and compassion. Now, if he could only redeem us, that'd be enough. Amen? If all he could do was get us out of it, praise the Lord, that'd be great. But he doesn't just redeem you. He also crowns you with his favor and with his blessing. That's what he does. He redeems us. Again, David is, is referencing a previous psalm. In fact, it's Psalm chapter number five which scholars believe was written about the time of 2 Samuel 17 when David was fleeing from Absalom. He's, Absalom's attempting a coup d'etat. He's trying to take over as king. He's, uh, David and his people are fleeing, afraid that in the midst of this that, that somehow they're going to die. So here he is. He's running. He's trying to get away from him. And he says, you know what? You crown me with your faithful love and compassion. You give me your favor. So not only did you redeem me from the pit, but you give me your blessing, you give me your favor. It's what God does. See, a lot of times, David reminds us here that in the midst of the worst possible pit of despair, the crown that matters isn't the one that people can see or that people can worship. The crown that matters is the one that God has given us in his steadfast love, his tender mercy, his, his favor, his grace, his goodness. That is the crown that matters. I want God to crown me with his goodness. It doesn't matter if anybody ever knows my name. As long as he does, that's enough. And I'm not just saying that because I'm your pastor. I'm saying that because I'm his son. As long as my daddy knows my name, I'll be satisfied. As long as he knows who I am, I'll be okay. Because that's the audience that I live for is an audience of one. We've got to step back. And say, whatever you want. But the problem is, the crown we often seek in our lives is the approval of others. And God does not, he doesn't live, he doesn't go for that. He's a jealous God and he wants all of our attention. It's fine to want others to see you or to appreciate you. Okay, fine. You want that? Okay. But at the end of the day, we've got to remember that that's also a trap. Back at the first part of the verse, he redeems your life from the pit. Again, that word pit in, in the Hebrew is also translated trap. Have you ever been caught in a trap? Have you ever been caught in a speed trap? I, I lived in small town America. You know what they're really good at? Speed traps. If you ever go to Enid, Oklahoma, and you drive from Oklahoma City, when you get north of Kingfisher, you better slow down. That, some of you said amen like you've met him. <laughs> They're good at it. When I was growing up in Clinton, it was a strange period in time. 
They didn't have radar detectors in, the, in any police car at all. When I turned 16, there was no radar detectors in town. If you saw an occasional highway patrolman, then awesome. There'd be a radar detector there, but none of the city police had it. Well, they decide, hey, these crazy kids are driving too fast. Imagine that. So they give one police officer one radar detector. And you know what they told him? You can't write a single ticket unless they're driving more than 20 over the speed limit. In the first two hours that he turned it on, on one street, he wrote 10 tickets. <laughs> Guess which road we avoided from then on? A few weeks later, every police car had them. With the same stipulation, no tickets unless they're more than 20 over. We've got to get this under control. They would write the ticket. If you went to court, uh, uh, Judge Cabanus, whose son and I played ball together, so we knew some things that everybody else didn't know. But if you'd just go to court when you got the ticket, he would throw it out. Well, lo and behold, it didn't take long until every ticket got thrown out. Because he was trying to prove a point that he was the sheriff in town. It didn't matter what the chief of police said. Throw them all out. Throw them all out. One day, Ellis Cabinus is no longer the city judge. You know how many tickets got written that first week? Thousands. The city's budget all of a sudden began to improve. They had this surplus revenue coming in because of all these speeding tickets. Now, when most people drive through Clinton, Oklahoma, you know what they do? Slow down. Because they know if you're on 183 on the east end of town between Cordell and Arapahoe, that as soon as you cross Gary Boulevard, main, the main part coming into town, as soon as you cross that, there's going to set my dear friend Miguel Gonzalez, lieutenant for the Clinton Police Department. You know why he sits there? because there's not a single stoplight coming into town until you get to there. And he writes them left and right for people that just keep on going through and keep on going through and keep on going through. You know how many people know that's a speed trap? Lots. You know how people get tickets there? Lots. You know what the devil does? He keeps laying the same speed trap, just waiting on us to get caught in it, laying the same pit, the same trap, and saying one of these days... You're going you're to keep running through it, and I'm going to catch you. For instance, the Bible says in Ephesians that we're to know the schemes of the devil. Well, if you know that that's a speed trap, slow down. If you know that you're, that's a speed trap, go a different route if you're not going to slow down. The point is, know that it's there. It's a shame to get caught up in the same trap over and over and over and over again. Friends, we've got to get out of the trap. That's one of the benefits of God. He redeems us and then says, quit falling into this pit. I'm going to give you something different. I'm going to replace the way you think about that trap so that you'll get away from it. He crowns us with faithful love and compassion. He redeems us and gives us a new way of thinking about it. It's not the same way. It's not what it used to be. He makes all things new. When he redeems us, he replaces our desires that entrap us. He replaces them. The, the, the fancy theological term for it is sanctification. Sanctification is the replacement of what, we, uh, of what we wanted, the things of this world, with the things of God. Oswald, in Philippians 2.13, it says this, For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire 
and to work out his good purpose. I don't know about you, but it doesn't get much plainer than that. He's working in us for our desires and our will. Have you ever had a time, I'm not asking you to point fingers at your spouse, but have you ever had a time and you said, I just don't have the willpower to quit eating this Mexican food? Or barbecue or hamburgers or french fries, whatever the case may be. I don't have the willpower to, no. Well, when it comes to the things of God, the Bible says that he works in us, not only to desire, but to do. He works in us. So if we're still failing in that area, we're not surrendered and submitted to him. Now, I'm not trying to get all up in your business and personal and step on all your toes in this supposed to be fun series about how good God is to us, but here we go again. There are times, thank you for that, there there are times, there are times that, that sometimes the Lord needs to give us a swift kick in the pants. I told you not to do that. And here we find ourselves in it again. Friends, he's working in us if we'll surrender and allow him to be in charge. Anybody? You need God to be in charge of what's going on? The benefits are there. He will work in you for wanting and for doing, but you've got to let him be in charge of it. You've got to let him control what's happening. Oswald Chambers said this in his book, My Utmost for His Highest. He said, the mystery of sanctification is that the perfect qualities of Jesus Christ are imparted as a gift to me. Not gradually, but instantly, once I enter by faith into the realization that he became for me. That's sanctification. Sanctification means nothing less than the holiness of Jesus becoming mine and being exhibited in my life. The most wonderful secret of living a holy life does not lie in imitating Jesus, but in letting the perfect qualities of Jesus exhibit themselves in my human flesh. Sanctification is Christ in you. It's Colossians 1.27, by the way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what sanctification means, that he's working in you. I can't think of a better benefit than that, that he is at work in us and working in us. That's that, that, that in salvation he imparted to us. Ironically, it's what Peter said was the case. 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 and 4 says that his divine power has given, me, has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Friends, that's what he does. He doesn't just, just say, hey, get good, I'm getting you out of the pit. Now keep being a pig that returns to the, to the slop. He says, I redeem you and I replace those desires within you. So if we're still struggling in an area of sin, we're not living in the benefits of God. If we're still struggling in an area, maybe it's because we need to let God replace those thoughts. We need to let him replace those mindsets so that our thought process lines up with the beauty of his word. Every time, every time, friends, I've ever found an area of my life to be lacking in what Scripture says. It's because my thought process was not in line with what Scripture teaches. I was trying to line up Scripture with what my thought process was. 
We've got to break that cycle and allow him to get us out of that so that our desires line up with him, so that everything goes the way that he wants it to go. So thank God he renews us on the journey, because sometimes this can get difficult, right? He, he, he renews us. He, he brings us along and renews us in that whole process and says, here you go. So when he renews us, that's the word satisfies as well. In verse 5, again, it says, he satisfies you with goodness. Your youth is renewed like the eagles. What does it mean to be satisfied? Satisfies us means to have more than enough. There's a good chance my wife is, is homesick. Cade's homesick. There's a really good chance I'm going to make my way to a Mexican restaurant for lunch. I just don't have the willpower. When I sit down for lunch, first thing I'm going to do is ask them to bring me a glass of sweet tea and uh, lemonade mixed together. That's as strong of a mixed drink as this preacher drinks. And I'm going to sit there and I'm going to drink that one. And before I can get done and she leaves the table, I'll ask for another one because I'll, I'll be parched and I'll be thirsty and I need another one. And then she'll bring another, and then they'll bring the chips and the queso and the tortillas. And what do we typically do when we go to Mexican restaurants? We eat till we're satisfied before we ever get our food, right? We've eaten till we're full. Quit looking at me like that. Don't act like you don't do it too. We eat till we're full. We eat till we're satisfied. You know what? You know what happens? And I love doing this to you because now you're starting to get hungry and I'm going to keep your attention on the things of God just a little bit longer. Here's what we do, right? We, we, we get satisfied and full and then, oh yeah, let me, let me just stretch out. And we reach down and try to secretly unbutton our pants so nobody will notice, right? You need to discover it, old Navy. They sell these stretchy jeans and you'll never have to do that again, Okay. I don't know if they do that or not, but I just thought it was funny. Anyway, so, so we, this is what we do, right? And, we, oh, and then we, we think, I just, if I'll stand up and kind of let it settle, then I can eat some more. And the, Now we're, over, we're overfilled, but it hasn't done us any good. We filled up on things that don't benefit us. See, when he says here that he satisfies us with goodness, what he's saying is he satisfies you with the things that matter. The problem is we develop an appetite and a taste for things that are not good. And we want to get satisfied with sin. We want to get satisfied with the fluffy little things that don't matter at all. We get satisfied on stuff that is less than filling. Yeah, it may make you feel like, oh, okay, I'm full. In, in Africa, in Malawi, they eat this stuff called ensema. And it's cornmeal, it's mashed, and it's bleached, and it has no nutritional value whatsoever. And yet they eat it like it is going out of style because it makes them feel full. Friends, we do this with God. I'm satisfied. That's not what he wants to satisfy us with. He wants to satisfy us with things that are good and things that are whole. Not, not face this dilemma that we aren't satisfied with what God has given us and constantly looking somewhere else. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be satisfied with him. I remember reading in Proverbs where it says to return to the wife of your youth. In other words, go be satisfied with the one you got. Quit looking everywhere else trying to find a new spouse that's going to make you satisfied. God's got one for you. Stick with it. Here's the deal, baby. You've got a plan. God's got a plan. Whose is going to win, yours or his? We've got to stay with what God has. 
Stick with what God's doing. The problem is we have to shift our thinking and our desires to line up with his. Now, Psalm 37, 4 is a famous verse. It's a famous verse that sometimes can get used out of context, I believe, because it says to take delight in the Lord and he'll give you your heart's desires. You know what I found that to mean more than often in my life? That as I take delight in the Lord, the desires that are in my heart come from him. I'm not saying that he can't, you can't have a desire in your heart and he can't fill that. But what I'm saying is most often if we're delighted in him, he puts those desires there. Stop and think about it for just a second. When was the last time you heard of this happening? I think I'm going to give that Jesus a try and while I'm at it, I'm going to write him a big old fat check. Yet, what typically happens in our lives is as we come to Jesus and he becomes more to us than anything else, our wallet and our pocketbook opens up and we become more generous because of what he has done in our lives. He puts the desire there to be more like him. The most giving person that has ever walked was Jesus. He gave his life. So as he works in us, he makes us more like him so that once we're satisfied, then he can renew us. Now, uh, these two benefits are if this, then that benefit rules. If he satisfied you, he can renew you. If you're satisfied in him, he can renew your strength like eagles, right? So what does it mean to be renewed like an eagle? I always thought that was a strange thing to say, right? Because after all, I'm already going bald. I don't need to be like a bald eagle. After all, I've been around some, uh, you know, some, well, some turkeys on earth. So what does it mean to be renewed like an eagle? I start thinking about it. Now, I'm not an eagle expert by any stretch of the imagination. And though they might have been the most godly team in the NFL, as a Dallas Cowboys fan, I couldn't care less that they won. I'm sad. This is not, uh, that's not an eagles that the scripture is referencing because the Philadelphia Eagles ain't God's team, Dallas Cowboys are. That's a different story. <laughs> Here's the thing I do know about eagles. Is that when a storm comes, they don't hunker down and try to hide it out. Instead, they let the same powerful storm that's beating and pounding against them to give them the strength to go higher and to elevate them above whatever it is that's come their way. That's the beauty of what an eagle does. When he renews you, it's not that the storm goes away. The same storm is still there. I don't know what you've been facing, what storm has come in your life, but what I do know is that when he renews you, he's gonna help you to elevate above it, to see it from a different perspective and not get trapped and beaten and battered by the storms of life. He's gonna renew you and elevate you above it. Now, I know that doesn't fit with a lot of our theological persuasions these days that life just comes at you and there's nothing you can do about it. Here's what I know to be true. No matter what comes your way, the storms and the winds and the waves, they still obey the voice of Jesus. Sometimes he makes those storms lay down and he causes them, he steps out and speaks peace and they are gone and they're done. And sometimes in the midst of it, he calms us. Either way, he's working in me and he's working in you to see his will accomplished in us. 
Let's trust him that his benefits are good and they're for us and that he has something special for you today. Now, some of you are kind of sitting there, I'm not really sure about this. Oh, yeah, storms, eagles, and okay, great benefits. Cool, God does that. Friends, here's the case. These benefits were what David rehearsing, he had seen God do in his life. It wasn't anything new. He was reminding himself of what had already been accomplished. Some of you here today need to remind yourself, yeah, we've been through some storms. We've been through really, really tough seasons in life. We've been through hell. But I ain't going back again because I don't have to. He's with me in the midst of it, and he will redeem my life from the pit. He will set me on a solid rock to stay. He will be with me every step of the way, because the way I see it in Scripture, where the presence of the Lord is, there can't be any hell, because he is there. It doesn't matter if it's a mountain high or a valley low. If he's with me, I'm good. I'm preaching way better than your amen. He is with you. No matter what, he's with you. No matter where, he's with you. He's redeeming you. He's setting your foot on a solid rock. He is for you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe today you would say, Pastor, you know what? I'm struggling. First of all, I've got sin in my life and I need to repent. I want to come to know Jesus maybe for the first time, maybe for the 100th time, but today is the day. If that's you, you've got sins separating you from God, would you slip up a hand today? We'll pray and we'll repent and confess and come home. Anybody at all? Come on. Okay. Who else? Come on. Who else? All right. Here's the deal. Here's where the rubber meets the road for all of us. How many of you are just still nobody looking around? Every eye closed, every head bowed. How many of you are going through hell right now? Whether it's with your health, whether it's family, whether it's finances, you are going through a really tough storm. Would you lift up a hand? Come on, be brave. Slip them up. Yeah. It's between me, you, and Jesus. Okay. Here's the thing, friends. The benefits of God are yours. The benefits of God are yours. He heals you. He restores you. He redeems you. He replaces and he renews. Come on, friends. It's yours. Lay hold to the promises of God today. They're yours. God's good. His mercy endures forever. He is yours, amen? The greatest benefit of all is that he is there no matter what we face. Mountain high, valley low, he is there. All across the room, in just a moment, there were those of you who raised your hand. We're gonna invite you to pray. We're gonna invite our elders and prayer team to make their way around altars. And we're gonna invite anyone who needs prayer to come. So right now, while you're still in this moment of, of, of thinking through and praying through, ask yourself this, Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me? What are you saying to me today? Where have I, I, I tried to line up your word to meet my lifestyle instead of adjusting my lifestyle to meet your word. Where have I not appropriated your benefits and your blessings to my life?